Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're talking about violence and why our perceptions about it are so often wrong. Wars in Syria, Yemen, and elsewhere capture the headlines, but around the world, the vast majority of killings are in countries that are not at war. What are the common causes? Reducing global violence. Rachel Kleinfeld. It can happen anywhere. And what happens is that regular people believe that the state won't protect them. And so they normalize violence. I started by bringing together all the experts around the globe. And then I asked this room full of experts, okay, so how do you get a corrupt police force in pick your country to accept some of these findings and implement the recommendations? And you could just hear crickets, you know, just nothing. Nobody had any idea. And I said, okay, well, that's the challenge. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? This one surprised me. The main cause of violent deaths around the world is neither war nor terrorism. It's actually homicide, murders by gangs, paramilitary groups, death squads, organized crime, and ordinary people. And something else. The world today is vastly less dangerous than it has ever been. Jim and I spoke days ago with Rachel Kleinfeld, author of the new book, A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. She's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Rachel joins us via Skype from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thrilled to be here. So let's look first at the problem of violence, the ways that most people die. What are some of the main causes? So most people think that war is the main way that people die violently because that's in the newspapers all the time. It's on television. It makes good pictures of horrible things happening. But the reality is that most violent death, about 83 percent, is in non-war zones. It's places like Mexico where from 2007 to 2014, more people died than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Or Brazil. You know, you don't think of the beaches of Rio de Janeiro as particularly dangerous, but more people died in Brazil over the last three years than in Syria. What are the three kinds of carnage that actually do kill four times as many people as war deaths in countries around the world? Governments killing their own people. Secondarily, regular murders. So just regular people killing each other for their own reasons. 
And then third are violent groups killing other violent groups. This is mafia wars, gang wars, cartels fighting other drug cartels. Um, and that is a growing number. What is the most common misconception about the way people die violently, apart from the fact that the vast majority don't die in wars? So I think there's two. I think policymakers tend to think that if a state is really having a big problem with violence, Mexico, Brazil, these kinds of places, the Philippines, uh, Nigeria, it's because the state is overwhelmed, too weak and too poor and can't fight back. And so we tend to give them security assistance. We train their militaries and we give them helicopters and all sorts of things to help them. That turns out to be false. Most of these states are not exactly rich, but they're actually pretty middling, uh, middle income, and they have enough money to fight if they wanted to. They're, instead, they're, they're often complicit. The government and the politicians are working with the violent groups, not against them. And you call this privileged violence? Yeah, I call the whole um, trajectory privilege violence because what tends to happen is you have a government official who's working with a violent group, say Colombia, where um, in the 2000s you had, uh, or in the 1990s particularly, you had a president who was so, uh, his campaign was so paid for by the Cali cartel that he wasn't allowed in the United States. Um, or you have a group like the Venezuelan military that's selling drugs directly. Um, often it's money that's motivating them, but sometimes it's violence against electoral opponents. And so they politicize their security agencies. They tell their police, look, your budget is dependent on me. And if you arrest these people that I'm trying to protect, you're not going to get your full budget. And what tends to happen is that good police leave and what you're left with are um, more violent, more predatory and they don't prey on the middle class, the voters and so on. They tend to prey on the people who are poor, more marginalized, less likely to make trouble. And so then those parts of the country, they've got predatory police. They have politicians who don't care. And they tend to turn to gangs and mafiosos who will come and say, look, we'll protect you against the other gangs for a price. By the time you get to the end of it, you have regular people normalizing a great deal of violence because they have no state to protect them. So to be clear, privilege violence is violence organized in some way by privileged sections of the society on everybody else? Politicians, leading business people, they don't necessarily want to live in a deeply violent society. What they want is low taxes. They don't want to pay a lot of money for police and security. They want what police and security exist to be deployed in their neighborhoods. Um, the streetlights should be put in their neighborhoods. That's where, you know, their business areas and the tourist areas where they make their money. And they often want uh, opportunities for corruption. They often want to make some money off the drug deals that are going on or uh, to have a cut of the proceeds from extortion of the gangs. And so the violence is a side effect. One of the examples of privileged violence you use that really hits home for <laughs> for us, I think, is the American South after the Civil War and all the way up through the Jim Crow era. That's right. And that was kind of the key to the whole puzzle. You know, I was going all over the world, looking at these countries, reading their histories, reading everything I could get my hands on, talking to people, trying to understand what was going on. Why was it that these countries weren't just plagued by rebels and mafia, but also by regular people being violent and a lot of murder and just trying to understand. And 
Then I started looking at the case of the U.S. South versus the Wild West because the Wild West had sky high rates of violence, just as bad as Medellin at the top of the drug dealing um, years, for instance. But they fell really fast. By the 1880s, 1890s, the Wild West was pretty safe. The South took the opposite trajectory. The U.S. South after the Civil War, got more and more violent. So by 1892, decades after the war, you had someone being lynched every 36 hours. And I wanted to know why. And it turned out that that was privileged violence, that in the South, after African Americans were enfranchised, your old Confederate politicians realized they couldn't win a just election. And so they allowed the Ku Klux Klan and the other Knight Rider groups, all these white supremacist groups, to do what they wanted to do in exchange for impunity. And slowly but surely, and actually not that slowly, within a couple of years, you started seeing Confederates repopulating Congress, making sure that laws against lynching couldn't be enforced nationally, making sure that um, these night Riders got impunity until by the 1890s, they were firmly entrenched and the violence could, um, could really take hold with no one worrying about the consequences. Link that to what's going on in other countries today, for instance, Nigeria or Brazil or Mexico? Sure. So it's it's pretty similar in a lot of cases. And in the U.S. South, one thing that was different was that there wasn't as much of a monetary reason. The, the politicians weren't acting because they wanted money. They were acting because they wanted power. And they were allowing the Ku Klux Klan to have impunity to, to regain their power at the ballot box. In Nigeria, for instance, you have two kinds of violence that are really um, hot and heavy right now. You have Boko Haram, the terrorist violence in the north, and you have uh, herders and pastoralists fighting, just like in the American West. You had sort of ranchers and farmers fighting um, about land. Well, it turns out that there are politicians who back the pastoralists and are allowing that that violence to continue without um, without fighting them. With Boko Haram – the military is actually accused of arming parts of the terrorist networks because they make money off selling the arms. But the other part of it is is the violence of the security sector. In the U.S. South, the police were violent as well against African-Americans, and the jails were incredibly violent. They had um, a whole system of convict leasing in which the death rates rival those of Nazi death camps. And you see the same thing in Nigeria. In the West, we hear these horrible stories about Boko Haram because it's an awful terrorist group. But what we don't hear is that the Nigerian military has killed even more people in its fight against Boko Haram and innocent civilians have been arrested by orders of magnitude more. And that strong reaction can drive a, a reaction and, and intensify the polarization of these societies, right? That's exactly right. I mean, if you're... Uh, take Colombia. Colombia is a great example of this kind of polarization. You had the wealthy landowners forming um, paramilitary groups to protect themselves from guerrillas. The guerrillas were forming because there wasn't a real democracy. It was a democracy in name only, but the same group, the National Front, would get elected. And then they had a deal, an, an actual explicit deal, that whichever party won they would divide up all the ministries and all the government posts 50-50 so that everyone could have a share at the patronage and the spoil system. So you couldn't really vote in in opposition. It was going to be the same people no matter what. So your left wing formed this guerrilla movement to fight it out in the jungle. And they were horrible. They committed all sorts of human rights abuses, rapes, murders. 
and they would kill a lot of landlords who lived in in the rural areas. So the right wing formed paramilitary groups to fight back, and they were equally horrible, and they also committed rapes and murders. And your whole society divided into the people who said, you know, if you were a left-wing university student, you would say, oh, you know, I hate the guerrillas, but how else are we going to get justice? There's no way to vote for a better government at the ballot box. And they become apologists, and the right would get together at parties at someone's country house, and they would say, oh, those paramilitary are just horrible, but how else do we protect ourselves in the countryside? And both sides had a point, but what it did was normalize violence throughout society. And so you started seeing much higher levels of just interpersonal violence that had nothing to do with any kind of conflict, because once society normalizes violence, it becomes thinkable to use it against your spouse, your boss, your employee, all sorts of regular people when they would get drunk at a party, that kind of thing. Colombia, as we're on Colombia, that has been a remarkable transition from an extremely violent country with uh, with civil war to now a country where there's real hope. What has happened there apart from just the peace agreement uh, that between the FARC and the government? A lot has happened there. And I think it's worth going back to the story we tend to tell ourselves. So if you're in the United States, if you live in Washington, D.C., where I work, the story that people tell themselves is they elected a president, President Uribe, who really wanted to fight. And the U.S. poured money into helping him. And we gave him security assistance and military equipment and intelligence equipment. And he fought the FARC and so decimated the guerrilla movement that they were willing to negotiate. And that's the story we tell. It's got a grain of truth in it, but what they don't tell you is that in the 1960s, the government also faced a guerrilla movement, much, much smaller, just a couple thousand. They called on the U.S. for help. The U.S. sent them military equipment and humanitarian equipment and helped them build roads and do all sorts of things that were considered quite progressive. And we decimated the movement. We, we killed almost all the guerrillas. There were just a few left. Those few got together and formed the FARC in the first place. And they grew to 18,000 and became the movement we know today. So what I say in the book is the military force only started working when the government itself was seen as legitimate and was seen as wanting to help its people. Before that, you just got the polarized society that I discussed before. And so what did Colombia do to actually fight the violence? Well, first, they made deals. They made deals with the drug dealers. They made a deal with Pablo Escobar that he would go to jail, if he um, that he'd turn himself in and go to jail. It was a jail that he built himself. Um, <laughs> and it was just as you might expect. There was a hot tub. There were plasma TV. I mean, it was a really cushy jail. But the violence went down. And then when he escaped from the jail, they made deals with a bunch of his henchmen who didn't like him to track him down and kill him. And those dirty deals were not just, they were not fair and they were not good, but they brought the violence down further enough that um, society could start to see a way forward. Meanwhile, society itself organized. You had social organizers who said, you know, this is just not working. And they forced the government to have a constitutional referendum that made for a much fairer government that broke that um, national front I discussed before and instead had a real democracy, allowed independent candidates to run, um, created a human rights court, created a human rights bill, period, because they didn't have it before. And that got the left to repudiate 
the guerrillas and say, look, there are other ways to get justice. You don't have to fight. And it brought society in in to agreement with the government so that the government wasn't fighting against its own people. And those things together are, are what made the change in Colombia. The fighting of the FARC only worked once society was once government was legitimate with its society and once society had decided that violence wasn't normal and that they were going to come to the streets to fight it out. Yeah. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And our guest is Rachel Kleinfeld, author of the new book, A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. And coming up, we're going to be talking about some solutions to the problem of violence. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You've been working on this for a long time. Who are some of the kinds of people you've talked to and what have, what has surprised you the most about the field? So to research this book, I started by bringing together all the experts around the globe. I held a big conference in D.C. with people from everywhere, from South Africa to Asia. And I said, what do we know? What do we know about violence and how we can fight it? And it turned out we knew a lot. And so we put together a literature review and sort of typical academic thing. And then I asked this room full of experts, okay, so how do you get a corrupt police force in pick your country to accept some of these findings and implement the recommendations? And you could just hear crickets, you know, just nothing. Nobody had any idea. And I said, okay, well, that's the challenge. That's what I need to look at. And so then I went around the world. I went to every settled continent, Ghana, Nigeria, Mexico, Colombia, Republic of Georgia, all over the place um, to talk with warlords, mafiosos, journalists, uh, activists, politicians, and figure out how some of these places fought violence. The things that make a country either very violent or more peaceful, can actually change pretty quickly. Tell us what you mean by the term decivilization. It can happen anywhere. And what happens is that regular people believe that the state won't protect them. And so they normalize violence. As more and more people normalize violence, brutal groups get a stronger standing, those gangs and cartels and mafias. But also regular people start using more and more violence against each other because impunity grows and it's considered more and more okay. You get violence being used because of disrespect or what have you that's considered okay. And that's the cycle of decivilization. And it can happen anywhere and often does. And and then re-civilization? Re-civilization is the opposite. You see this, for instance, in New York City after the violent middle 1990s. 
America had a huge crime wave in the early 1990s and mid-1990s, and um, violence had become quite normal. Those of us who were alive then probably remember the stories of kids sleeping in bathtubs to avoid the shots that were being fired by drug dealers in their neighborhood and kids killing other kids for their tennis shoes and things like that. Violence became really normal in various places. And then it changed, and it changed in part because of civilization. What happened was the kids of the parents who were addicted to crack cocaine said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to act that way. We're not going to let our kids grow up that way. And they stopped doing hard drugs. And so hard drug use plummeted exactly in the places where it was most used in the inner cities. You also saw all sorts of other indicators get better. And it had to do with those kids, the teenage pregnancy rates plummeted, uh, smoking rates plummeted among kids. Basically, good behavior grew. As people said, we don't want to live in a society as ravaged as it is in the early 1990s. And they were helped by a state that had changed. In the 60s and 70s, the U.S. police system had gotten a little out of control. In New York City, you had a police killing every four days. And a particular New York police leader in 1970 said enough and created a whole reform system. And that spread around the country. As the police became less violent, they learned to connect with communities better, communities trusted them more, and so a cycle of re-civilization could get going, whereas people trusted the police, then they didn't have to kill each other to solve disputes. They could turn people into the police to the point where New York City now is at violence levels that were last seen in the 1950s. It's it's um, had lower and lower homicide levels every year for the last 27 years. Yeah, the amazing story. And as people who live here, we've we've lived through the, that era. One of the things that really struck me was your point that for this to work, this cycle of re-civilization, you really have to also get the middle class involved. How does that happen? That's right. So it's really easy in every country for the middle class to say, oh, this violence is horrible, but it doesn't affect me and I have other stuff to do. And often um, in these highly unequal democracies, that, the places where this kind of violence takes hold are highly unequal and highly polarized. And it's it's easy because they live in different parts of town. I, I quote the statistics from Jill Leoby's book, Ghetto Side, which is a brilliant book as well. And she says in the mid-1990s in Los Angeles, the murder rate for most people was seven per 100,000. It's a little high, but not super high. But if you were African-American, it was 10 times that. And if you were a young African-American male, it was 368 per 100,000, which are rates that rival our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. So if you're a white middle-class person on the other side of L.A., the violence isn't affecting you. And it's easy to, to just ignore it. And so what has to happen for change to really happen is for the violence to start hitting the middle class. Usually the gangs go too far. They're fighting each other and, and or the drug cartels decide to have a shootout on the street because they're fighting each other. There's various reasons why it goes too far. It starts to hit the middle class. And the middle class wakes up and says, wait a minute. This isn't just drug dealers killing other drug dealers or criminals killing other criminals. This just hit the son of my neighbor. Um, this just hurts someone who looks like me. And then they organize and they can organize in two ways. Politicians might try to get them to organize in a repressive way. Three strikes and you're out, zero tolerance policies, broken windows kinds of policies. All the research shows that those don't work, um, that they actually strengthen the gangs and cartels. But they sound really good. They sound tough on crime. And if the middle class votes for those, it tends to send the country or the place back into more violence. 
But you could also have social organizers who help the middle class see that actually everyone needs better policing. You need a state that works for everyone. And if the middle class votes for that, then they're well on their way to fighting the violence. You list four cities in the United States that are much more violent than Latin American cities such as Tijuana or Medellin. What's going on in these cities in America where things are still so violent? Is it because there isn't much of a middle class? So, yeah, you're right. New Orleans, Detroit, St. Louis, um, and and Baltimore are more violent than some of the most violent Latin American places that we, we think of. And there's multiple reasons for it. So one part is that there's not much of an activated middle class. The middle class tends to be pretty small and the population tends to be very polarized. Another part of it is that um, you you get police who are considered predatory. And so in Ferguson, which of course made the headlines a couple of years ago, it's part of St. Louis. In Ferguson, the police were um, incentivized to try to make money for their police department through asset seizure. It was legal, but they weren't necessarily targeting anyone who had committed a crime. They were taking people's cars and, and other assets under a civil forfeiture law that's um, little known, but is starting to get more, more uh, uh, press thanks to a Supreme Court case right now. So you had police that were predatory in New Orleans, quite famously after Katrina, people um, recognized that some of the police were running murder rings. The police were involved with um, gangs themselves. They were some of the worst criminals. Not all of them, of course, but it doesn't take a whole force to be bad. It just takes a few who are bad enough that they scare the good members of the force into quiescence. Looking around the world, you mentioned that in Colombia, for example, U.S. aid by itself not only wasn't the decisive factor, but in some cases may even have provoked a kind of backlash. What can the U.S. do as a matter of international policy to give a helpful boost to the countries that maybe do have the potential to start this re-civilizing process? Sure. So the first thing we have to do is recognize we're not the main actors here. The main group of people who are going to make change are the middle class in a country. And our job is to make their lives easier, to help them see the problems that um, are being intentionally obscured by the groups that are benefiting from the violence, and um, to, to help them come together across polarized divides. And you, and you seem change. to be saying that you seem to be saying that here in the U.S. as well, right? That the middle class <laughs> is the key. That that active in citizens who take an interest in their democracy or in 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 their system, they make a real difference. That's absolutely right. It's a real it's a book about human agency. What I found was that places are not inevitably bad, nor do they inevitably get better or worse. It it takes real people deciding to make them better. Um, in the book, I tell the story of Emmett Till's mother. A lot of us know the story of Emmett Till's lynching, um, a really horrible lynching of a young man in the 1950s. But not too many of us know about Emmett Till's mother, who was an incredible social organizer and got the press to cover the open casket funeral and got international press to cover the trial and basically shamed Americans into realizing that they had a problem and that they had to deal with it. So yes, in America and in other classes, the key, uh, other, other countries, the key is the middle class. And so what can we do as Americans? If we're looking at other countries, one thing we can do is clean up our financial system. There's a number of bills that are in Congress right now to do this. 
because a lot of money that gets laundered because people are in in um, working together with drug cartels or with violent groups, it's getting laundered to New York City, through London, through the major financial hubs, and so tightening that is helpful. Yeah, we have we have we have dirty money buying huge penthouses here in New York, for instance. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a famous way to launder money in Miami. More than half of of houses in Miami, I believe, are being paid for with cash. Uh, now, some people might have that kind of cash on hand, but some people don't. <laughs> and um, you know, if you're seeing that many big cash transactions of real estate, it's often a sign that that laundering is happening. So tightening our system would help a lot. We could um, give aid at better times and more of the right kind of aid. So. When a government is in power that wants to make change, then they need help right away. And it doesn't need to be much money. When a government is in power that's complicit with the violent groups, then giving them security aid is about the worst thing we can do. So uh, paying attention to who's in power and what their incentives are. And even when it's a reformer, I argue in the book, power corrupts. People don't stay reformers forever. And so more assistance to what's known as civil society, but is really just all the watchdog groups, all the citizen groups for accountability, all that kind of thing tends to dry up when we see someone who's a reformer take power and the government starts giving money to the other government. And we need to keep the keep the money flowing to civil society groups. And the same goes in the United States, right? If a, if a reformer comes to power in an election and says, I'm going to govern for everyone and I'm going to clean up our criminal justice system, you know, witness what just happened last month with the criminal justice bill. That's great. And we want to help that and we want to provide money to help that all happen. But we also want to keep the citizen groups alive so that they can pay attention when things start backsliding. In the West, we, we often like to think that the answer overseas is more democracy. But you say that's not necessarily going to reduce the amount of violence. I think real democracy, a real democracy where your government leaders are elected fairly and honestly and answer to all their voters, that does reduce violence. What doesn't reduce the violence are countries that pretend to be democracies but are really oligarchies. And that's what we see in an awful lot of the world right now is countries that say, I'm now a democracy. Look, I hold elections. But if you look a little closer, the elections are highly compromised. They might be violent. They might be keeping the opposition from using the media, all sorts of things. And in that winner-take-all democratic system, there's a lot of reasons to use violence to fight the other side. And so and also to um, help violent groups in order to get enough money to, to run a campaign. So the worst kind of violence happens in autocracies, the the kind of state violence I talked about before. You're still going to see the worst of the, of the worst in a country like China and a country um, that has total control over its people's lives where they don't provide accurate statistics to the rest of the world. But second most are these fake democracies that are really oligarchies and they're really about a small group of powerful people maintaining their hold on power. Rachel Kleinfeld, author of the new book, A Savage Order, How the World's Deadliest Countries Can Forge a Path to Security. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And coming up next, some thoughts about Rachel Kleinfeld's book and her really refreshing ideas. 
Jim, to me, the overwhelming solution that comes out of this, as it does with many of our guests, is the problem is more complicated than we think and that we have to understand in better ways than we do now some of the causes of a crisis such as what is killing people around the world and also realize that that television and newspapers are not doing this subject justice right you know, normally we go into a lot of depth in our in our wrap up, and I have a lot of opinions. I'm going to curtail my habitual prolixity, to use an SAT word, uh, because I, I think that uh, uh, Rachel Kleinfeld's statement of of the overall mission of the book is so clear and and important. Save a little more time for her, and a little bit less time for us. Except just to put in a big plug for people to take a look at the book. It's my favorite kind of journalism in that. It takes a lot of preconceptions and comfortable stereotypes that we all believe about how the world works and subjects them to a real intense spotlight to show you that, as you say, they're more complex. It's not as simple as it looks, but there are some solutions. And a really complicated uh, subject written in an engaging way. There's some fascinating stories about individuals and also some reasons for hope. There are countries that have turned themselves around. Yes, and she actually she cites two of our recent uh, How Do We Fix It show guests, uh, Francis Fukuyama and Jonathan Haidt, whose work also helps illuminate some of these problems. So if, you, if you're behind on your back podcast, I recommend you go back in our archive and dig out those two shows. And I also recommend that you check out the work of Solutions Journalism Network, which is trying to cover and urging journalists to cover what works as well as what's wrong with our society. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we are a production of Davies Content. Check out what we can do for your podcast at DaviesContent.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.